navigate some stairs and around some wires and, and things. Jill, as you know, was uh, the speaker for the Women's Conference yesterday. Many of you are there. I've had contact and friendship with Jill and her, her husband, Stuart, for about the past uh, 30 years. They're in a ministering partnership at uh, Elmbrook Church in Waukesha, Wisconsin. Uh, Jill uh, and her husband have co-authored how many books? 30, 40, 40 books. Uh, she is also on the board of a number of organizations that you're familiar with, World Vision and Christianity Today, speaks uh, all around the world. But her greatest claim to fame is that she is a grandmother of seven. Every time she talks about her grandchildren, her eyes light up. And I understand that she has three that were born within 24 hours of each other, which they have codenamed Search, Destroy, and Demolition. <laughs> and uh, she's going to be staying with Demolition in uh, Chicago, I understand, in uh, a week or so. So we're just uh, delighted to have Jill with us. Open your hearts to what she has to say to us this morning. I really am delighted, third time. <laughs> I really am delighted <laughs> to be with you, and I really mean that sincerely. And uh, yes, the most important thing in my life at the moment is the fact of my season of grandmothering. In the dim and distant past, when life's tempo wasn't fast, Grandma used to sit and knit, crochet, tat, and babysit. When the kids were in a jam, they could always count on Gram. In an age of gracious living, Grandma was the gal forgiving. Grandma now is at the gym, exercising to keep slim. She's off touring with a bunch, taking clients out to lunch, driving north to ski or curl. All her days are in a whirl. Nothing seems to stop and block her now that Grandma's off her rocker. <laughs> and this Grandma's is off her rocker, that's for sure. But it's a wonderful season of of life. Somebody wrote to me, I don't know how many times they have, publishers, and said, please write us a book about the empty nest syndrome. You know, they always want you to write books as you grow in age to hoard uh, 100 years of age. <laughs> then they're really interested in knowing what that feels like. And so um, I have resisted this. And in the end, uh, I said to one of them, I don't want to write a book about the empty nest syndrome. And they said, well, why not? And I said, because I believe if you're a Christian that you have no right to have an empty nest. The world is too full of birds with broken wings. And I really believe that. And this has been a marvelous season of our lives. Stuart and I feel that we have more energy and more heart and more drive and more urgency to um, just keep our boots on and go on marching, and that's a wonderful place to be. Now then, I'd like you to turn your Bibles to Luke's Gospel, chapter 5, because I want to talk about fishing. When I was asked a title, I don't know if it's in your bulletin, I said, Gone Fishing. When I was a little girl, hundreds of years ago, I remember, I used to say to my mother, so often, where's Dad? He's gone fishing. My father was a fisherman, a real fisherman. All summer, we would fish. We would fish the streams, the lakes, the rivers of Northern Ireland and 
the Scottish Lakes, the English Lake District. We would follow little streams for a day before we get to the pool that probably no one had ever seen before, pushing our way through the underbreath. And there we would find the salmon just side by side. You could almost pick them up and pull them out with your hands. And all winter, we would make the flies to catch the fish under microscopes. And we would collect little bits of fur and stuff. I always used to remember, um, if somebody had a fur coat, I would go up and <laughs> come home to my father with my little prize in my hand, or a dog with an interesting tail would go by. And <laughs> it was great fun. But my dad was a fisherman. I mean, he really knew how to do it. And so it was very easy for me when I became a believer at the age of 19 as a student at Cambridge University. Very, very easy for me indeed to transfer and translate what the scriptures said about fishing. And I want to read a very famous, familiar passage of scripture to us and apply some of the lessons that we read there. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of them belonging to Simon, and he asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down, and he taught the people from the boat. When he'd finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night. And we haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I'll let down the nets. When they'd done so, they caught such a large number of fish, their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and he said, Go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they'd taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on you will catch men. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> so they pulled up their boats to the shore, left everything, and followed him. Probably one of the most familiar passages of scripture that we have, or that we know, certainly one of the first ones I ever read. And I want to use a very simple outline today. First of all, these people in this story had a because-he-needs-me day. Have you ever had one of those? Now, I'm quite sure, or I, I am presuming, that most of you have had a because-I-need-him day. That's where it all begins, isn't it? When you realize that God walked down the stairway of heaven with a baby in his arms, put him in a bale of hay, intervened in human history, and the gospel came to be. Good news. God becoming as we are, uh, dressing in our clothes, lying in our beds, eating our food, feeling our pain, crying our tears. God become man, divinity dressed in humanity. What a wonderful, wonderful gospel, good news that we have. We perhaps, hopefully, have realized that because we can't get to heaven ourselves, somebody needs to show us the way and take us there. Because we're sinful, someone needs to lend us their rightness to cover our wrongness. And we have put our hands in the hand of Jesus and let him lead us to God 
We have been forgiven. We have been born again. We have said we are sorry for our sin that put him on the cross. We have had a because I need him day. But you know, it's very different having a because I need him day to having a because he needs me day. And I think a lot of Christians spend the whole of their lives thanking God for dying for them, realizing that Christ's death made them fit for heaven, but never realizing his life makes them fit for earth. And that's the other side of the equation. When Jesus, preaching to the people, found himself pushed further and further back towards the water behind him, he realized he was going to get very wet. And looking around, he saw Peter's boat. And he said to Peter, Peter, I need your boat. What a wonderful picture. And I work in pictures, I think in pictures, I write in pictures. The picture of our lives as his boat. Our lives need to become his living pulpit out of which he addresses the crowd on our shore. And you have to get hold of that to get the excitement of the Christian life. That your little boat can go where my little boat cannot go. That your life, that living pulpit out of which Christ can speak to the people on your shore, can speak to people that I can never speak to, and vice versa. And that, for me, was the Christian life. I was very, very blessed to be brought to Christ by a girl that taught me that truth. All of Christ in all of you. The very first day I was converted. In fact, she told me to go to sleep thinking about it. She said, go to sleep saying, all of God is in all of me. All of God is in all of me. And I came to Christ realizing that even though I knew nothing, I didn't know whether the apostle was the wife of an epistle, as I've often said. <laughs> I had never opened a Bible. I had only been in a church to paint it or to visit the beautiful King's College Chapel at Cambridge, which everybody does at Christmas time. That sort of thing. Even though I was totally ignorant in my background of Christian belief, I came to realize the day I was saved that Jesus Christ had come into my boat and that my whole life, my whole passion, my whole heart had to be mission from that point on. And when I say mission, I'm not talking about Africa. For the mission feels between your own two feet. And we have to realize that. That too I got hold of the day I was saved. We had our missions conference not too long ago at Elmbrook Church. And we were going around the room talking to our missionaries and letting them talk to us and getting to know them. And this little girl that I had known since kindergarten, I think, in our church that had grown up in our 23 years that we've been at Elmbrook, I had watched her and seen her grow into this beautiful young, what, 23-year-old, 24-year-old. Now she's heading off to Azerbaijan in the Russian group of countries to serve the Lord there. And as people were going around the room, our missions pastor simply said, tell us how God got hold of you and just one thing about your call to missions. And we were hearing some wonderful things in a statement or two about how God had called this very group of 40 or 50 people that we had there at our missions conference, all missionaries, serving in different parts of the world to missions. And I was looking at my little friend, wondering what she would say. And when it came to her turn, the mission pastor said, 
how did you come to be called to be a missionary? And she said, I got saved. That was it. I got saved. And I thought, how neat. Because when you get saved, when you get blessed, you are blessed to bless. When you get saved, you're saved to serve. When you come to know Jesus, you come to know him that others may come to know him. You get saved. You're either a missionary or a mission field. And once you quit being a mission field, you become a missionary. For the mission field is between your own two feet at any one given time. Geography is of no consequence. What a blessing I got hold of that very, very early in life. Because the place that you're standing, the place that I'm standing, is truly holy ground. Any place your feet and his feet are standing at the same point of time is holy ground. And that transforms the whole of your heart. Mission. I remember as a young mother, shut up to three small children, little tiny house in England with her husband who was always on the road, being mom and dad in those days to these little children, thinking, this is what we left the business world for? This is Christian mission? My three little preschoolers, I had had another idea in mind when we went into full-time Christian work. And as I watched these three little children tumbling around, it was like Vietnam in our living room, and <laughs> I was hoping nobody would come by to see this Christian family at play. I remember my little daughter coming to me, and her arms were full of all her worldly goods, her toys, her books, for she had two brothers, and she had to take everything everywhere she went. <laughs> And as she came up to me, little Judy, four years of age, big blue eyes in a still point of their own, I suddenly realized that we were standing on holy ground. In fact, I even slipped my shoes off, I can remember, to remind myself that this was important because my little girl said to me, Mommy, if I ask Jesus into my heart, will he make me put my toys away when you tell me to? And like a good Christian mom, I said, yes, dear. <laughs> You'll have to do that because Jesus will want you to be obedient. It was a good question for a four-year-old. For what she was asking was, will it make a difference? Will I have to be good? Will I have to do what he says? And so she thought about it for a minute, clutching all her things and said, okay then, I won't. And I remember thinking, oh dear, I've blown it. I thought she'll go on drugs. I'd had the funeral, you know, the whole thing. <laughs> However, I was baking at the time, and I started to pray about that, and I thought, why didn't I do a better job with that? I should know better than just to say yes, dear, and have her go away. And off she was. She was quite happy. She was playing with her toys. And about half an hour later, she gathered everything up again and came back into the kitchen. And standing there, I can still see her now, she said, I'll put my toys away, Mummy. And I just dropped everything and took that little girl by my hand. We went into our living room. We knelt down. And Judy Briscoe came to Jesus Christ. And I caught a little big fish that day. Didn't know it, but I did. That little girl's professor now in a seminary teaching pastors how to reach the underprivileged and the AIDS patients and the homeless caught a little big fish because the mission feels between your own two feet and I'd just like to encourage you mothers you young mothers 
here who don't feel very holy sometimes when your kids are just throwing a fit and you're up to your arms in baking. Mission. I will make you a fisher of men. You can catch a little big fish, even today perhaps, because of what you've heard in church. Don't let anybody rob you of that, Mom. Wonderful if the Sunday school teacher does it, but better if Mom does it. Bring your child to Jesus. So you've got to have a because-he-needs-me day. And that gets you up in the morning with a new sense of expectation. Where's my fish, Lord? And you know God is so hard up for fishermen, he's going he's to have to use you. He's really not much option. And that's sort of nice to think about. However badly you think about yourself, he wants your boat. Peter's little fishing boat. Not the Queen Mary, just the little fishing boat. It's all he needed. And your little boat is made just right for what he has in mind. I remember after being converted, going home to Liverpool. And as I was on the train from Cambridge to Liverpool, I decided, seeing I knew that Jesus Christ was coming to my life and my life had to become a living pulpit out of which he addresses the crowd of my shore, to make a list of the crowd of my shore, which I did. It didn't take me long. All my friends, about 10 of them. And I decided wouldn't waste time. I wasn't going to spend years over this. I'd do it all at once. <laughs> and so I got some invitations before I even got home as a young student, 18 years of age, and I invited them all to a party, as my habit was, um, at my house at the Saturday night. And they all came, except one girl who couldn't come. And to my horror, when they came, because I had just said on the invitation, I have something really exciting to tell you, they took the obvious... Uh, conclusion that I had got engaged, so they all brought me presents. <laughs> and as I opened the door, to my horror, they were clutching their present and looking all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, wondering what I was going to tell them. And they all walked in here, and I thought, oh no, they think I've got engaged. And I remember them standing, I can see, you know, when, when something very important happens, it's as if the memory clicks a, a switch, and you have the frame, the photo in your mind. And I can today, as I'm telling you this story, think of my ten friends' faces standing around my father's drink cabinet, and I gave them all a stiff drink, which was my habit. I'd only been saved a week, forgive me. <laughs> and I gave myself one too, for I needed it. <laughs> and I watched them all, and they said, well, go on, go on, who will, you know, what's, what, what's happened then? And I said, well, I, it's, it's not that I fell in love sort of, but, well, I did, but I, but I fell in love with, with God, and <laughs> I've become a Christian, and I can see them now, huh? <laughs> and they've come back, slow motion. Well, I lost the crowd of my shore that day, except one girl. She says I forced her onto her knees and made her pray a prayer. I really didn't. I'm sure you I didn't. Clumsily, I caught my fish that day, my first fish, a couple of weeks after I had become a Christian, Julie by name. Caught a little big fish that day too, quite a gal. Lost the rest. You either catch them or you lose them. I never heard my father say once, I've influenced a lot of fish today. And yet, that's what most of us do. And that's what most of us settle for. When did you catch your last fish? When did I? Talking to me as well. 
whenever I give a talk like this, I know the Lord's standing here saying, oh, listen to you. Yes, you should listen to this as well. And so I want you to know that I'm listening very hard to what I'm saying. When was the last time I led somebody to Christ? For Christ expects every single one of us to be a soul winner. Not every single one of us to be an evangelist. But if Jesus Christ is living in us, he came into us in order to win souls. He's the great fisher of men. He's in my boat. He knows where the fish are. He knows how we can catch them. And we have to put ourselves in his hands to be trained with that in mind. So often, I think, in America at this moment, we are into discipling. We've sort of graduated. You know, that's for young Christians, that evangelism stuff. Or I'm not gifted. And we're into nurturing and teaching and training and, you know, the safe stuff. And yet, every single one of us must never forget that we are called to share our faith. Every Christian a witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, you know the root meaning of that word is martyr. It's going to cost something if we're going to get our heads shot off out there. And you know, the fish as I have observed it are not in swimming pools. This is the swimming pool. We are not to fish in the swimming pool. We are to fish in the muddy streams out there where the big fish are, in the ocean. We are to launch out into the deep. We are to let go of the shallows. We are to get going in life. That never changes. So you have a because he needs me day, and then you start, did you see the little phrase, to live a because he says so life. Second point. You live a because he says so life. That is quite simply put, a life of obedience. You do what he says. I am so grateful for my English roots for many, many reasons. I am also grateful they have been nourished in American soil. But I am grateful for my English heritage because it taught me, among other things, to do what I was told. I was brought up having a huge respect for authority and being taught to do what authority told me to do. So again, I had no problem when I became a Christian. And I remember saying to Janet, the girl that led me to Christ, what do I do? How do I be the Christian I've become? And she said, just do what you're told. Just do what you're told. And I said, who's going to tell me? And she said, Jesus. And I said, how am I going to know what he's telling me to do? And she fished in her handbag that was hanging on her hospital bed. I was in hospital at the time. And she picked out some pencils. And she gave me a red and a blue and a yellow and a green. And she said, use the blue one to color in everything he says you're to do, the commands. That's what he's telling you to do. And then use the green one for the warnings and the yellow one for the promises and the red one to try and hang your heart over the scripture and see what he is saying to you from it. What does it say? What does it say to me? Those two questions. It's all you need to know. And she produced this huge Bible. It seemed to fill the ward. I thought, oh, how embarrassing, this big Bible. She was reading hers on a Friday, not even on a Sunday. That was a new concept for me. But she gave me this Bible and she gave me the pencils. And there in hospital, she began to show me how to figure out what the scripture was saying and how to apply it to my life. And so I used that blue pencil. And my old Bible is colored from beginning to end with blue that's telling me what to do. When he tells me what to do, I try and do it. I apply it. 
Now, it's there in principle. It isn't there in particular. For example, I struggled one day whether to go into a very... We were in street evangelism for years, just uh, youth evangelism. Whether to go into this uh, very disreputable place. Uh, I wondered what people would think to see me going into this place. And in my experience of street evangelism, the church organist is usually around the place. Forgive me where the church organist is. I'm not <laughs> saying anything for you. But the person you do not want to see you going into these places from church is usually there when you're going in. And I just felt that I didn't want what would happen to my reputation if people saw me going into these places. I was struggling with my reputation such as it was. And as I came to the scriptures to ask him what I should do, should I go into these places? Should we, should we try and reach the young people in here? What about my Christian character and what people might think if they saw me working in these strip joints and drug places? I was in Philippians. I was looking for a command. And of course, there it was in principle. He made himself of no reputation. And in my old Bible, I have written, so what am I worrying about mine for? You apply the principle to the particular. You do what you are told. You begin to live a because he says so life. And what a wonderful thing that is, to live a because he says so life. It's exciting. It's costly. It touches everything. I realized immediately I was a, I was a born-again Christian that it would touch the choice I would make uh, for a, a mate, for a spouse. For I had to do what he told me to do. If he told me not to be married, I wouldn't be married. If he told me to be married, I would be married to the person that he would have me marry. All of that is involved. In fact, I came to Christ on that. Jenny, the girl that led me to the Lord, asked me three questions. Are you willing never to be married? Are you willing to be a missionary? And I can't remember the third question. I was so staggered at the first two. I remember saying to her, don't Christians get married? And she said, well, yes, they do, but the scriptures say you should not marry an unbeliever and there aren't any men in the English church, so by the law of averages, you won't get married. <laughs> and she said, if you're not willing for that, don't become a Christian. It took me about a couple of hours to think about that. <laughs> and as best I knew how, committed myself to that, believing I probably would not become married. However, it didn't defeminize me and the other side of conversion, I could not stop helping, I could not help stopping <laughs> every time an eligible young man came on the scene to saying, maybe God, you'd change your mind, maybe this is the one in a million that's for me. And I remember one day sitting in my little pink and white bedroom in Liverpool, England, writing down a list Lord, I said, if you should ever find one of these rare breeds of Christian men around here, I would like, as a, as a spouse, this, this, that, and the other. And I made a list of about 15 things. And then I knelt down, I'm sort of dramatic sort of person, knelt down in my bedroom and said, would you like to read my list? <laughs> and I know I heard the still small voice say, I can see it very well from here. Thank you, Jill. I know it's on your list. And then I know I heard the still small voice say to me, give me the list. And I remember clutching it very tightly and saying, I don't know if I can trust you with it, Lord. I don't know how long I knelt there, but I do remember shutting my eyes and imagining the nail-pierced, 
Galilean hens of Jesus underneath my list. And letting my list at last fall into those hands was a very good image for me because every time then somebody would appear on my horizon, I'd shut my eyes briefly and remember he had my list. I was going to live because he said so life. And one thing I knew he'd said was if you do not have the opportunity to marry someone who can with you say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Don't bother. Aim high. Go for the gold. God in his grace, a few years later, fulfilled my list. Every single thing on it. <laughs> yes, he did. But it would have been all right if he hadn't. Can Christ satisfy you as a single person if, because he says so, he takes your life as his living pulpit and uses it without a partner? Yes. Doesn't mean you're not hungry for one. Jesus in the wilderness was hungry for bread, but he stayed hungry because he wanted to do the will of God more than fill his stomach with bread, satisfy that appetite. A living because he says so life can affect your choices, your big choices, your little choices, all your choices. It must if you are to become a fisher of men. If your nets are to break with the amount of fish that you catch, it will demand of you and I obedience in the little things as well as obedience in the big ones. However, if you do not live because he says so life, you will spend your Christianity until the day you die in the shallows, paddling around in the shallows, close to the shore, frightened to let go and launch out into the deep. It's hard. One of the reasons I think that we don't click into a message like this or it doesn't seem to relate to us is we feel that we would not know how to do it, how to share our faith. And I'm not just talking technically. You can go to classes, and I'm sure you have them here, of how to witness and how to show your, share your faith. That's just your tackle. That's just your, your box of, of flies and stuff like that and learning how to cast. All of that needs to be done, but I know many a little boy that's caught many a big fish with a rod and a bent pin. It's the heart is the passion there? I'm asking myself that question too. Have we lost our passion? Do we care that souls are dying? Do we care? Children lost and voices crying. Do we care? As the old hymn says it. How much do we care? Do we care like he cared? Enough to become the first missionary and leave his safe, wonderful home in heaven to come and live in a 12 by 10 house in our world. Are we going to stay in the shallows of Christianity? A lady said to me not too long ago, I feel shallow in my Christianity, Jill. And I said, well, maybe that's because you are. She didn't want to hear that. But then we went on to talk, and I tried to find out why she felt shallow. And in the end, I said, well, maybe you're like the little boy that said to his mommy, mommy, I fell out of bed last night. Darling, how is that? And he said, I stayed too near where I got in. Did you stay too near where you got in? It's easy to do. If you did, you'll feel shallow, you'll be shallow, and you'll never have the joy of having your nets break. And you say, well, I don't know where the fish are. Now then, 
Some of us really don't because we are living in a subculture of Christians. I can't remember. Somebody's figured it out. Six years after you've come to Christ, you don't know anybody on a close level that isn't a believer because you have become so enamored, quite rightly, with your fellowship, with all the people, you know, definition of fellowship, two fellows in a ship. Well, you've become so enamored with all the people in the ship, in the boat, in the swimming pool, that you have not nurtured the relationships. You have not been out there teasing the fish with some bait, getting to know them, understand them, care about them, wanting to catch them. And so when we have a big event at church, for example, you don't know anyone to ask except somebody of a very, you know, loose nature in the sense of your relationship and they're probably not going to come with you because the friendship evangelism hasn't been being done. And you might say, well, I don't know where the fish are. What you have to do is just go. Every year I try and make goals for myself. That's what America's taught me to do. I didn't know what a goal was until I came to America. Now everybody makes goals. I think it's a great idea. (laughs) And so one of my goals is that I will join or put myself physically in a situation where I will be among non-Christians. Maybe it will be the PTA board. Maybe it will be a volunteer organization. Maybe it will be a tennis club. Maybe it will be, I don't know, what? But I ask myself, where are the fish? Okay, I'll join it. Very simple. Maybe some of these practical ideas can take root in your heart. Make a list of the crowd on your shore. Go home, ask them over this Saturday. Join a club. Where are the fish? I'll join it. Very exciting when you do that. And he knows where the fish are. But he knows where the fish are in the ins and outs of daily life. Many of us are working outside the home, women as well as men, certainly men. The fish are there. You know that. You have them swimming all around you in the office every day. But which is your fish? He knows where the fish are. If you've ever doubted that, you ought to get a back copy of Dr. Billy Graham's letter. I think it was three years ago when he had his African campaign. It was a wonderful prayer letter. He told the story of a young African couple The man was married to a believing wife. The believing wife uh, had become a Christian after the marriage, and it was a bad marriage to begin with, but it got worse after she became a Christian. He did not like this woman he now found himself married to. He said to her, I did not marry a woman like you. I now found myself married to a woman I didn't marry. I liked you better the other way. Well, she couldn't do much about that. She started to pray for him urgently. He decided to get rid of his wife, but not just to divorce her, but to kill her. And so he had this little plot. I'll accuse her of stealing the keys of the bank. He was a janitor to a bank. As he went to work, he stopped over a bridge where the headwaters of the Nile met, took his bank keys out of his pocket and dropped them in the river. Went home, went to work, left early, got drunk so he'd have courage to do what he was going to do came home, hammered on the door very late at night and screamed out, Wife, where are my keys? What you do with them? Why did you steal them? She got out of bed, picked the keys off a hook on the wall, 
gave them to her husband. He stood there looking at them and followed her back into the bedroom and said, where'd you get these? She said, well, it was the strangest thing. I went to the fish market. <laughs> now it's coming. I bought a great Nile perch. And there in its belly when I cleaned it were your keys. How did they get there, she said. Well, according to Dr. Billy Graham, the man fell on his knees and was certainly converted in an instant. Wouldn't you be? <laughs> I certainly would be. No question about that. Do you think he doesn't know where the fish are? I remember in street evangelism years and years and years ago, standing in a rainy Manchester town in a doorway near a fairground. Where are the fish? On the fairground. And as I stood there, I said, Lord, there are many fish. There are shoals of them around me, but there is one that you have in mind for me. I have no idea, but you know. You see him or her. Just connect us. Show me. And I don't know, I stood there probably half an hour just praying, watching the youngsters in their gangs with their leather jackets and their chains on their backs. So tough, tough kids, gorgeous kids, but tough kids walking past me. And then just saying, Lord, I'm just going to trust you as I get involved to put me in touch with my fish. And walking out of that doorway, picking off a little girl on the edge of a group and asking her, are you cold? Do you want a free cup of coffee? I'm buying and she looked at me a little startled and then said, sure. And in we went to the coffee bar and I started to give her coffee and work very hard at getting her to like me because if the fish don't like you, they're never going to listen to you. And after about an hour of conversation, I said to her, are you on the run? And she said, yeah. I said, when did you leave home? She said, about two weeks ago. I said, how are you doing? She had a guitar slung on her back. She said, not very well. She said, don't like it. But she said, it's better than home. I said, have you got a bad home? She said, no, I'm a pastor's kid. Oh, I said, why'd you run away? Well, I'm not a believer, and my mom and dad were just getting on my back so badly, I had to get out of there. She was a modern-day Onesimus. And she said, the only good thing about this is I'm away from all those Christians. <laughs> and I remember praying, Lord, when do I tell her? Don't let me frighten her off. She was on my line. And that night I persuaded her to come home with me and I got her in the car and locked the door. She looked a bit startled and I thought, got her. <laughs> and as we were driving along, she said, now who are you again? And I said, my name's Jill Briscoe. But I said, I'll tell you who I am, young lady. Tonight I am the answer to your mum and dad's prayers. That's who I am. And she said, are you a Christian? <laughs> I always remember the horror on her face. But I had her in my car. She couldn't get away. Dear little Judy, and about a month later, she lived with us all that time. She came to Christ, and I caught a little big fish. Oh, yes, a very little big fish that day. I remember listening to her sing at the Billy Graham Crusade in Chicago years later. You never know who's out there. Little fish, big fish, fish. Do you think he knows where the fish are? Of course he knows where the fish are. And the excitement is making him lord of the boat. And where he tells you to go, you go. Go over here, go over there. Peter says, 
But we've tried that. We've done it all night and caught nothing. But because you say so, I let down my net. And you will lose it in the NIV. But what actually happened was Jesus said, let down your nets, plural. And he let down his net, singular, silly man. That's why it broke. He knows where the fish are. And as they brought those fish back to shore, Peter was absolutely dumbfounded. And he fell at the feet of Jesus. And he said, depart from me. I am a sinful man, O Lord. And Jesus said, don't be afraid, Peter, from now on. You're going to catch men. And they pulled up their boats, do you remember, left everything and followed him. Now, one of the things that's going to happen is you're going to get a new sense of priority. If you will say, I will live a because-you-say-so life, and I have realized today, this morning, I have had a because-you-need-me day, then there is going to be cost to it. And you're going to have to detach internally and maybe externally from things. Very few of us will be asked to do what Peter was asked to do. We were asked to do it. Some of you have been asked to do it, but very few. We came to America with two suitcases apiece. The church said, sell everything and come with what you've got, and we'll provide a nice house, which they did, with everything you need in it. Now, I'd been a missionary for 14 years. That shouldn't have been hard for me. But as I began to sell up everything, wedding presents, everything, and put all my clothes in one suitcase and my other suitcase for things that were very precious and that I could fit in it to come, I went upstairs and found my children doing the same thing with their suitcases. Now remember, again, Judy putting all her dolls on the bed and talking, she didn't know I was there, to the big one, her favorite, Wendy, saying, Wendy, you can't go to America, you're too big, you won't go in the suitcase, but I'll find a good home for you. It was hard for Judy. It was hard for her mother. And I realized that even though I thought I had things, things had me. And God had to take my fingers and say, hey, hold it lightly. Don't hold it tightly. And whether you have to do it as we had to do it, or whether you have to do it simply internally and detach, which is harder because you're never quite sure if you have, it has to be done if you're going to be a fisher of men. I love Scott Wesley Brown's song on his missions tape. Things upon the mantle, things on every shelf, things that others gave me, things I gave myself, things I've stored in boxes that don't mean much anymore, old magazines and memories behind the attic door, things, things on hooks and hangers, things on ropes and rings, things I guard that blind me to the pettiness of things. Am I like the rich young ruler, ruled by all I own? If Jesus came and asked me, could I leave it all alone? Oh, Lord, I look to heaven beyond the veil of time to gain eternal insight that nothing's really mine and to only ask for daily bread and all contentment brings to find freedom as your servant in the midst of all these things. For discarded in the junkyards and rusting in the rain lie things that took the finest years of lifetimes to obtain. And whistling through the tombstones, the hollow breezes sing a song of dreams surrendered to the tyranny of things. Powerful stuff. Powerful in reality. 
Now, don't feel sorry for us. We have a house full of junk this side of the Atlantic, just like we had one the other side of the Atlantic. But it was a lesson to me that we hold things lightly and not tightly. There will be a new sense of priority once the choice and decision is made. And there will be a new sense of humility and purity. Depart from me, I am a sinful man. As we were singing those worship choruses, I was suddenly overcome with a sense of awe of the holiness of God. And there will be a new sense if we have this heart of compassion and passion for the souls of men, of the purity of God, of our unworthiness, of our littleness, of our nothingness. I always put it of my very ordinary Mrs. Briscoe-ness. I am just such an ordinary little Mrs. Briscoe. But I have a great big extraordinary God living inside of me. And that's what makes the difference. And there will be that new sense of humility and sense of nothingness with his somethingness that overwhelms you and gives you a sense of the power that is yours to do what he's called you to do, to get out there, launch out into the deep and catch fish for the kingdom of God. And there'll be a new sense of mission, of passion, This summer, Stuart and I were privileged to go to Asia for six weeks for OC, Overseas Crusades, who set up missionary conventions across mission boards. And we'd had an incredible time in Japan and Indonesia, finished up in Laos, communist country, Thailand. But I think my low point came in Thailand Thailand is a first world city. Bangkok is a first world city. But just before we went, Time magazine hit the stands with the pictures of the prostitutes, I don't know if you remember that one, in Pattaya, which is a beautiful seaside town, up country, actually where boatloads and jumbo jet loads of people come in for the sex. It is uh, the AIDS capital of the world, we were told in Time magazine. And as we went to have our missionary convention, because of Time magazine's article, the hotels, and there are more hotels in Pattaya than anywhere else in any country in the world, the hotels were empty. There was a total AIDS panic because of this article. So the mission was able to get a high-rise luxury hotel for $26 for the week per person. (laughs) Missionaries thought they'd died and gone to heaven. It wasn't just marvelous. (laughs) Especially when they'd been living and working. And so we gathered the Missionary Alliance Convention and all the other missionaries from other places that wanted to be at that convention into this hotel. And we had it for ourselves. No one else there. One day, one of the missionaries said to me, would you like to bring your camera and come out? Bring your video camera. And we went out up and down the streets of Pattaya. And I took pictures of the sex shops. Every other shop or every shop along street after street after street. But it wasn't, it wasn't the signs that got to me. It was taking my camera lower and watching the little boys being painted gold for the little boy shows. And then she took me on the beach. 
beautiful, beautiful beach. And I watched the pedophiles walking up and down, mostly Western, the ones I recognized, hundreds of them, hand in hand with little people. And I said to her, who's here? And she said, no one. And I said, no, which mission's here? She said, no mission. I said, well, where is the Christian church? She said, there isn't one. I said, well, where is the fellowship? Where are the Christians? She said, there aren't any. And she and I got down in the sand, and we cried. And I prayed a very silly prayer, actually. I prayed, oh, God, give me another life. That's what I prayed. And I know he's not going to answer that. But I looked at all those people, all those kids that I... In another context, another day, I was able to go to. And I know they're reachable. I know they haven't rejected Christ. They haven't had a chance to hear. Not once. From that experience, I came back to Charles Stanley's singles retreat at Hilton Head. Thousand bright, bushy-eyed singles. We were meant to talk about single stuff. Stuart and I looked at each other, and we turned it into a missions conference. <laughs> we came back from Pattaya broken. And I remembered, I think it was Stephen Alford saying, until you have bent knees, wet eyes, and a broken heart, the world will never be reached. And that's what happened to me in Pattaya. And I said to those kids at that conference, I've been in your prayer meetings, and I've heard you pray. And many of you are praying, Lord, I am willing to go, but you are secretly planning to stay, aren't you? And as best we knew how, we tried to give them a window on the world. Do you care? Do you have that passion? Have you lost it somewhere? What does it mean when Jesus says to you today, I will make you a fisher of men? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I am reduced as I talk, and I ask you to stir the fires within me, stir up the spirit and keep me caring. Light the passion light in my heart for the souls of men. And I pray that for my brothers and sisters here this morning. Lord, we are so satisfied, so intent on feeding our stuffed souls. And a world is dying on our doorstep. Here in Idaho, here in Boise, there are people that have not rejected you. They have not had a chance to receive you. And God, I simply pray that you would bring your heart to bear in us and through us for your kingdom's sake, for your name's sake, that Calvary be worthwhile. And in your name we pray. Amen.